Hello on this fine Monday evening. This is Joshua Johnson and my co-host Hunter Levy at the Roundtable Podcast. How's it going, Hunter? It's good. Great to be here with you, Joshua. After a couple of false starts, finally getting on the microphone. I'm very excited. Nice. What do we have to talk about today? So we were tossing some ideas back and forth and something that has come up a couple times in conversations recently that I wanted to get your take on was the work culture in the United States. And there are a lot of different facets to that, which we'll get into. But namely, what we were talking about is kind of the way in which Americans view work and how their perception of work affects their identity or how they think of themselves. So, um, yeah, I guess we could just get it going by kind of what do you see as like the work culture impact the United States and how does that define you if it does? Well, when I was thinking about this, I was actually taking it back a step and going back into like the history of work and how it's kind of changed and evolved over the years. So, I mean, I kind of took like a philosophical historical approach to it. So if you want me to share that, I can just go for it. Pretty, pretty on brand. Yeah. You know me, historian. Okay. So basically I thought of there are like three main, I guess, stages of work in history. Like when you think about the, uh, in primeval times, work was for survival. You were like hunting, fishing, gathering game, maybe basket weaving, things like that. And it it wasn't for pay. You weren't doing it for monetary gain. You were just doing it for survival. It was what you were doing to survive. And you did it as a group, did it with family. And so in that way, it it was essential and also very natural. And like even in different uh, cultures and like, like even in like the Garden of Eden, the idea was that like they were supposed to work the ground to um, enjoy the fruits of their labors. And after like in the Bible, after the fall, like Adam and Eve eat the apple they still have to work, but the difference was that there were like thorns and thistles that made it harder to work. So, and then the second stage was kind of like work as trade. And so basically you would make a good and as society advanced, you would have these barterers and merchants that were kind of a middleman and stepping in the middle and in the process of getting goods from one person to the other. And so the the monetary value it was less less um, manifest. But then finally, stage three is like work for money, and that's where the wage labor system is in full force. And I don't know, have exact geographic or uh, chronological time zones for this, but basically, I would say maybe the Industrial Revolution, maybe the eighteen hundreds or later. Nowadays, we're working for money, and it's a wage labor system based on, as Marx would say, the oppression of 
the proletariat, the pro the bourgeois oppressing the proletariat to get free labor for them, and it's an unjust, inequitous system. Mm. How do you think that fundamentally changes our relationship with work once we transition from stage one to stage two, and then stage two to stage three? I really think. So it, stage one to me seems very natural. It's kind of similar to what animals would do, but except there's also more art to it. Uh, once you get to stage, in stage two, it's kind of like you might have an occupation or a profession, like you're a shoemaker or a tailor, you're doing something and you, you find fulfillment in it. You might do it all your life. You might be training from it from maybe your fathers or your mothers or grandfathers. And then stage three, it's basically, it's very hard not to find your meaning or identity not defined by how much money you make. And so in the previous ones, like it was what you did was fulfilling to you as a human and helped your identity. In stage three, it really seems like you're dependent on the number and it really makes you feel bad or worthless if you don't have a certain number attached to you. Wouldn't you imagine that the identification of oneself would be so clearly defined in that second stage, whereas one could imagine that in the third stage there would be more of a freedom or flexibility to identify yourself however you wanted to by having the freedom to transition from, you know, now I'm a shoemaker and now I'm a musician and now I'm a teacher, whatever it may be. Uh, but you think that that actually isn't the case. We become defined whether personally, internally, or outwardly by the numeric value more than anything. I think you're right that in that second stage, you were, that whatever your occupation was, you were that your whole life, and it was very hard to change. Um, I guess you could say that was like the caste system, and there was less geographic mobility for people that were in a certain trade. And yeah, you're right now, nowadays, people can do whatever they want. And with that, there is also, it's very hard to decide what you want to do, but it also feels like, oh, how am I going to survive if I don't have this certain job? Like in times when I've been unemployed, it has been very psychologically taxing. Even though it's kind of strange, you actually do find that you do survive fine without money. It is to a certain extent, um, it can be very taxing to not have um, employment. And it also affects how you think of yourself. Like, oh, if I just have this job, then I will feel so much better. I'll, I'll be this. I'll have this goal. I'll have this meaning in my life. So I don't necessarily think it's like good to feel that way, but I, ju I just feel like that's how it is. And it's very easy to see oneself as defined by one's work or the lack of it. Definitely. Yeah, I can really, really resonate with that feeling and I actually agree in, in my experience, it's the same thing where it's not so much the money, even though that may be one of your initial, you know, indicators that's 
what you're thinking of when you're seeing how, you know, your life is somehow not like adequate at that point where you're thinking like if I was making money, you know, I'd be so much more settled with my life situation. But Mm -hmm. to me, it's been even, it's more that like sense of, you know, being present in my life in terms of like doing something on a day-to-day basis where Mm -hmm. I've come home, you know, when I came home from the Peace Corps and I had like, uh, not a lot of money by any means, but I had a chunk of money given to me by the United States government. Thank you, uh, Uncle Sam, for that. And I was like, oh, I just have this money and I can hang out. You know, I have some time to spend with family and be back with my community, whatever. But very quickly, I felt this gnawing sensation at me. Like, I need to do something. You know, I need to fulfill my time in a way that and this is actually the heart of my question and what I want to talk with you about is like, is it, is it myself that I, that really feels this way that like my not working is, is not doing enough or is not, you know, doing my duty or whatever it may be, or is it coming externally where I'm feeling this way because I feel like other people will think less of me if I'm not working hard, you know? So I guess actually that leads me to my, leads me to a question I want to ask you of what defines work like the way you kind of broke down historically like what work was but now in a in a modern sense what what is work and like what makes hard work because you kind of grew up with the idea of like you know you you get something if you work hard right if you if you work hard for something you can achieve it but and this might be taking taking things down a different path but I've been thinking about like investments or think about something like Bitcoin, right? Like somebody, some 21 year old could have put, you know, a thousand dollars in Bitcoin five years ago. And now they're, they have hundreds of thousands of dollars. You know, was that work? Like, did they, did they earn that money somehow? From a physics perspective, work is defined as force over time or over distance, force over distance. So if you're applying, it has to be this physical thing, but I agree Work has definitely changed. I mean, you can be a manual worker, you can be a a mental worker, do computer work. Um, I was thinking about the definition of work and I came up with work is a mode of activity under which undertaken for future benefit. And it's it's different from like play or leisure and play is an activity for its own sake that has its own reward. But work is looking forward to like a future reward, and that can be monetary or um, survival. And so, in this day and age, the definition of work I think has definitely transitioned. I, I think, I think you just—it's just about applying yourself. How much are you mentally applying yourself? Because a lot of us aren't doing that physical labor anymore. And I also would like to get your opinion on that. But I think that it's the degree to which you apply yourself. Like if you're working at applying to graduate schools, that that is work. You know, you are spending all that energy and investing yourself in that. And so it's like the amount of time and energy you invest in something. So, yeah, what do you think about 
the the difference between manual or uh, mental work, and is one better or worse? That's a good question. I have quite a bit of experience in manual labor. That was mm-hmm. how I got my start when I was a teenager. Nice. You know, not a lot of mental work opportunities, not a lot of white collar jobs for a 15 year old. So I started out doing odd jobs. One of our close family friends did a lot of, um, I don't know, not, not like woodworking in a, in a traditional, not like carpentry type stuff, but you know, he would build decks and, nice. you know, repair fences and stuff. So I was kind of his, his sidekick handyman painting, you know, painting houses and things like that. And I, I definitely don't think one's better that one's better than the other, you know, manual labor versus, uh, desk work or however you want to, you know, more menial work. Mm-hmm. But I do think that there's a really tangible, satisfying sense of accomplishment when you, like you said, you know, a pressure applied over time when you, when you paint the side of a building, right. And you start in one corner and at the end of the day you finish and you see that whole wall painted. There's something that ascends out of whatever monetary value you are getting paid for Mm -hmm. that work. And it, it affects you in a, in a different way. Um, and having been working in a more like desk type job for the past, uh, six months, I definitely missed that sense of accomplishment. Mm -hmm. And that is a part of the work life situation that I, I think I'm craving. And I, I think a lot of people crave that feeling, you know, like Mm -hmm. I don't know that many people who, who sit at a desk all day and feel really satisfied at the end of the day. You know, I feel, I feel like a lot of them leave the day, leave the work day with the sense of like, now I'm, now I get to go work on whatever the thing is that I want to do, you know? Whereas when you finish the day, painting that house you're like i'm spent you know i i gave myself to that project um so to me there's a lot clearer of a sense of accomplishment yeah exactly and so i think like many young people i think i have this idealistic view of like what work could be Mm -hmm. and i would i would want it to be something that carried that sense of accomplishment along with it and purpose you know we use the word purpose a lot uh, to define that. But what about you? What do you think about that, uh, the relationship between those two things? Yeah, I think there's definitely a romanticization of manual labor. And I'm even for my own life, I've, I grew up in the city, but I wanted to work on a farm. And to some extent I have fulfilled that and I have enjoyed it. Um, and it's yeah that romanticization if i had like my own farm and my own animals and i was putting in that physical labor then life would be really great you know and i i definitely agree there is something whether it's endorphins or something else but when you put in a full day of manual labor it definitely the sense of satisfaction and the sense of accomplishment is very great and it's hard to really beat that but then the other thing is if there are certain types of 
um, non, I guess, physical labor that are also satisfying. And those, for me, I think it, like working with children, like in a teaching environment, that, that satisfying, especially if you're um, helping them, whether it's like tutoring or like, like directing them with life in terms of advising or counseling. I've, and like having conversations with, with, ch with kids and getting them on just hearing their stories that can also be a uh, satisfaction sense of accomplishment like you're you're, hel you're helping society so there are other jobs that they don't have to be manual that can um i mean if you were like maybe a politician or i don't know if you're actually doing something maybe like not a politician but like an activist getting things done on a broader scale i think you could also get a similar sense of accomplishment yeah, maybe maybe that comes from progress. Maybe that's the key uh, mutual factor between yeah. those is is yeah. like a sense of we started with this brick and we ended with this house, you know, and we started with this skill set that the student had uh, yeah. and we ended at this final location where they are at the end of the school year, you know, and and the feeling of accomplishment by, might be the recognition of that progress. But then there are also, you know, there there are more abstract things that people can feel accomplished about. So it's it's not that simple, but... Yeah, um, like film, uh, creative writing, journalism, those type of things, I also agree. Right. It's like, when's that stuff done, you know? when When's the film done? When's the novel done in the way that you know, you, you work on something yeah. physically and you, you can see like, okay, this is our goal and this is, you know, when, when it's completed. But yeah, yeah those things are a little more amalgamous and a little harder to pin yeah. down. But, um, I, I did want to point out something you said and, and kind of open up a question with that. As you said, you know, when you do certain things like teaching, right. Or maybe activism, in a field that you're like particularly passionate about, you know, you said it's like something you could feel good about. I can't remember the exact word you use, but that leads to the idea of like there being a, a morality connected to work. Mm -hmm. Right. And do you think that there's any moral imperative that we have in work in the United States or should there be? I would say, yes, there is a moral imperative with work. And that is just simply the fact that, people feel themselves that they have to work and i do think that that is a an innate sense of duty i guess if you want to call it like as i said before like if you don't work at at the primeval level you wouldn't you wouldn't have survived and so i do think there's like a sort of a connection to society that one should work and maybe contribute to the goal and i know i'm not trying to mean like in a sort of judgmental way but yeah i do think there's just kind of like a a facet or aspect of society and human life that people work and that i would call that a moral imperative um you could even look at the bible and like i think it says like yeah to work the ground to be or to like be fruitful multiply and work the ground so in religion there is that imperative to work and work as a good constructive activity 
Um, but it's also seen as like a curse, you know, this horrible thing that we have to live with. Right. And where does that come from? You know, like maybe that's, that's the point along the path where we've diverged, you know, and, and turned it into this, this thing that is, maybe that's when you, you attach the numeric value to it. Right. And then it's like, well, the only reason I'm doing this is for this numeric value. So if I have this value elsewhere, why would I work? But you know, you're saying, and I totally agree with this. There is this innate sense, and maybe this isn't felt by all people. And this might be a, a particularly American thing. I'm not sure, but this, this feeling like I got to work. I think it's a human thing though. I really do. Yeah. Uh, this feeling of dissatisfaction if if one is always in that leisure state mm-hmm. you were talking about maybe different cultures culturally have varying levels of you know that breakdown between work play and leisure yeah. but uh it does seem to be like an innate thing that we crave and um the question that i come to at this point of our progression in society is when we reach a point where some people don't have to work anymore, you know, when we're, when we live in a society with such abundance. And then, like I mentioned with the Bitcoin example earlier, there are these really abstract, seemingly disconnected things occurring all in an, in a digital space that people are making so much money from. And then they're, can be th- those people can be disconnected from actually, you know, their their labor. It's like it's all fruit and no labor, you know. Mm-hmm. And it ma- makes me wonder, like, what sort of impact that will have on people when it comes to the way that they identify themselves or how they, you know, feel actually, like as a person, like when it comes to, you know, waking up and saying, like, what am I going to go about my day when when you have all this like wealth at your fingertips, you know, what, what can, continues to drive you? I, I wanted to add on to, um, the other part about, I do think work is as an innate part of society, but I don't think that work is the same in each culture. Like if you compare like the Netherlands, I think their work week is 30 or 35 hours. Um, so it's just America where we want to work 40 or more hours. Um, like Spain, you have the siesta, where it's like a two or three hour cessation from work every day. And so I do think it's a cultural thing, but I do think the basic idea of like working or just like providing for yourself is necessary in part of all societies, but like how much that takes or the meaning or value placed to that, the degree of time it takes. But yeah, in terms of technology, um, to me, it's really hard to see like, coding as as like a satisfying job and for some people it is but it's crazy because you can make so much money for it i was watching this show selling sunset where this brokerage in la is selling high-end houses to west hollywood people and like some of them are like tech tech guys and they're like 25 35 and they've retired they're buying like 11 million dollar mansions it's just insane the kind of unbalanced like it's not even like a question of fairness it's just like 
so radically different than anything that's gone before. Like you put, not that not that they didn't put effort, not that like Mark Zuckerberg didn't put effort into programming his website in college, but the payoff and like, I don't know, it's just like you're just sitting at your computer and typing and then you get millions of dollars. It's just crazy, you know? Um, but then you have like YouTubers and TikTokers and I, I, I mean, they do find meaning in their work. Like they get up and they make their little videos and then they meet some people. It's a way to broaden their horizons and connect people. Some people are like traveling, working remotely. So I definitely think, and I do, I do think like technology is obviously disruptive to work, but it also provides new opportunities that wouldn't have existed. So like even like the YouTubers and TikTokers, I don't like necessarily envy them because like they, they have their own little struggles, um, but they get definitely. up and do their, do their things and they get up and, and they talk, they talk. baby. They TikTok. (laughs) (laughs) No, uh, I, yeah, I, uh, I had a couple of thoughts from that. Mm -hmm. It it made me think, and it seems like you're knowledgeable on the, the Marxist stuff on it when it comes to, you know, like amount of input versus outcome, you know, like the degree, do you think that the degree with which someone can get that amount of outcome based on the amount of input is just like a uniquely American thing, or that's just like a really capitalist thing. Where do you think that comes from? You know, like the, the 25 year old who can, you know, buy a $10 million home. Yeah, I do think that definitely is a Western thing. Cause if you think about it to become a programmer, one has to, I mean, one could, could come from a poor background, but one has to have a computer and presumably fast internet. One has to be able to like have that leisure or that financial support to sit there for hours on end. And this is like before one gets, starts their company. This is just like the kid that's sitting there, you know, um, you definitely have to come from like a place of at least middle class, I would say. But then at the same time, you have places like India where hundreds and th- thousands of people are joining the tech workforce and like oh, mil- millions, millions, so many and, and putting all this stuff out there. And so, but then you have like Africa where they're like trying to give them computers, um, and they have like hand-me-down computers and 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 then you have like this weird thing where it's like getting electricity or getting a cell phone in like a village in Kenya and how that works and I do think it's like unequal in that sense like we talk about the internet as like the universe I don't know the the idea was that it was supposed to be this like universal place that everyone could be themselves but it is you cannot escape its Western foundation or origin, Western um, wealthy, I guess, origin, specifically in California, where a lot of that started. Um, it's interesting you say that about uh, that dynamic in Africa, because it was really curious for me in the village I lived in, like a really remote 
village in Africa where they had electricity and they had internet, but it was all cellular internet. Oh, okay. So for me as a kid growing up, you know, like when I learned about my introduction to most forms of technology was through a computer, right? Like there were seminal moments in my childhood where I came to understand the functioning of a basic computing process. And it was mind blowing as a kid, you know, Mm -hmm. like learning how to search on the internet or learning how to, you know, that I could play games or do certain calculations on the computer. Mm -hmm. I was like, no, this is crazy, you know? And the way in which, Almost everyone that I interacted with in my village in Morocco knew the internet was through a cell phone. So you're you're just fundamentally approaching it with a different set of tools, you yeah. know? And it was just a totally different thing. And so like yeah. the way I think that goes to your point of like there's a there's a inequality there where the person like me who comes to learn about the internet through a computer mm-hmm. versus, and that's also a time frame thing, right? Like, you know, this is me in like 1999 or 2000 versus somebody in 2018. Yeah. But that I'm learning about the internet through a completely different like computing apparatus. And that's like giving me all these abilities that somebody who's on a, you know, Samsung phone, doesn't have right it's gonna be really hard to learn how to code on a phone Uh, yeah i agree with that (laughs) exactly you know so um but i did actually want to bring it back to the uh point about the youtube and tiktok thing because i a part of that actually that i think goes against the sort of traditional capitalist model or something that i'm seeing as a growing phenomenon in the online uh marketplace or ecosystem is this cutting out of the middleman and going straight to the content creator, mm-hmm. which I th- is wonderful to me, you know, like Patreon, you know, Patreon mm-hmm. and like all these different things where instead of saying, you know, the big company, the Disney or whatever that decides who gets a TV show, you know, they raise the money and then they recruit the actor and then that's the person on the show. Now it's like some, you know, teenager down the street, they're making their funny videos and they're putting it on YouTube and it's like, yeah, they're getting some money from YouTube and the ad revenue, but they can also, they're also getting money directly from the viewers. You know, the viewers are subscribing to them directly and that cutting out of the middleman to me is like a really cool step where we're moving in a direction where, like you were saying, maybe internet can be the the great equalizer in one sense where, you know, when it gets to a certain point of, technological accessibility mm-hmm. which has its own downsides you know i'm that's that that's maybe a whole nother conversation but like once everybody has access to that it's more of a level playing field to where you know more people can create and more people can put things out um and so i'm i'm really into it on that side of the coin where more people are given the opportunity to create but then there's also this like dilution of what's being put out there you know if if you can put anything out there then maybe you don't have to fact check your stuff and maybe you don't have to put as much work in because you're not as worried about you know judgment from other people yeah the internet has definitely lowered the bar for creative output i mean like 
if you were in the 50s or the 90s even and you were wanted to be a movie star then you would i guess look take acting classes and then you would try to get some roles and try to be seen maybe you'd get in a commercial or something and then you just work your way up and there'd be many years like maybe you'd be a waitress or something maybe you would do some different jobs that you didn't like all that all that time and you'd be working up to it and then finally maybe you'd get success but it would definitely be a process but now you can just like put a video out there with like no effort no um forethought not to say that the youtubers aren't but like yeah anyone can just put a video out and and they do put they do put thought into it but it's just a totally different the internet has completely just cut out um a huge segment of i don't know what you'd call it and like even with like products um i keep going to stores because i'm trying to buy something actually usually it's like something techy, like a cable or just something and it's like they don't have it it's like you just order it online and i went to the store because i wanted to buy it there i didn't want to order it online you know like i went to this music store to get this mic you know that I'm talking into and this was like the last one they had and they're not going to get any more and it seemed like they're going to like go out of business and it's just crazy to me and sad that I guess that'd be like the Amazon the Amazon effect which has dropped the middleman right for products and to me that part is sad right and is that on is that on us the consumer yeah. to continue to support the the local stores oh yeah i definitely think it is but it's almost like yeah the convenience of it makes people not want to get go out of their house right right and i don't know if i yeah. really want to live in that type of world you know no i think my girlfriend abigail and i we've we've tried our best to fight against the yeah malevolent onslaught of the tech giants Mm -hmm. in their Mm -hmm. like cult of uh of convenience it's a cult of convenience because they they make it so easy for you to the point where it's hard to say no even in the face of something that you don't believe in you know and they use convenience as a way to get you to do things mindlessly and I mean, we don't even, that's not even going into like actually, you know, planting things into your like head with media, you know, based on your search history or whatever. That's a whole nother thing. But just the the act of making things so unbelievably simple, you don't even have to get out of bed. We're going to drone an Amazon package to your house and it's there. Like you don't need to go down to the local record store and go get a record. Like we got that for you, you know? So that stuff, yeah, I hate. <laughs> Spotify. What's man. a record exactly? <laughs> um, but yeah, that stuff. I mean, it makes me think like, what's what's the next step? You know, is it is it just more and more conformity to the point where it becomes accepted, or is there going to be like a backlash where people? say no like we we don't accept this we need to we need to find ways to like carve out that 
space for people to work, mm-hmm. you know, in these other ways. Like, yeah, uh, maybe a certain type of technology can do this thing more efficiently or, or faster. But at what point do we recognize the value in the actual process of the work being done for that person? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I think, do we ever reach that point? I think millennials really have this sort of fetishization of like the real thing. And I think that impulse in itself is a good thing, but I think millennials kind of get funny about it. Like I, I think I saw like, what was it? Like artisan cut firewood or something. And it was like, <laughs> it was this guy, he was like, had a beard, you know, and, and he was like, I cut this firewood to like the best. I don't know. It was just, you, you should look it up. Um, Isn't that just all, all firewood? And he like wraps it and sends it to you, of course, probably using Amazon services. Right. Of course. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, okay, yeah, I think like farmers markets, those are a positive thing. Like you can right. buy, if you want real, right. real goat soap, real hemp, hemp milk soap, then you can get that. All that or again. Right. Not in Idaho. I just found out. No oh, really? no hemp in Idaho. No hemp? Okay. Yeah. I just I just hemp's illegal in Idaho. I mean no you way. might be able to have it here, but like you can't. It's what? illegal to sell hemp in Idaho. That's crazy because George Washington grew hemp. So yeah. he was a day don't one. Know their history. <laughs> <laughs> no, but yeah, you know, I I really was going through that kind of thought experiment the other day when I was standing at the grocery store in the morning and I was standing in the egg aisle. Right. And I have, I've made that leap. This isn't like a patting myself on the back thing, but like we I've made that leap in my house to where we're going farmer's market. We're going co-op as much as we can, you know? And it was a big, it was a big transition. And for the first time in a long time, I looked at the price of the regular eggs and I was like, why would you ever buy anything else but the cheapest? It's laughably cheap. It's like a dollar yes. for a dozen eggs versus like three fifty four dollars for organic, free range, whatever, you know? And it's like, you have to pay. It's not like, oh, I'm going to make the, you know morally superior decision and I'm going to pay an extra like, you know, 25%. It's like you have to pay so much more. And to me that, that shows an issue in the, in systems that we have in place to where that's even possible, you know, like, I don't know. That's where I'm not, I'm not an expert on it, but I I feel like we could be doing better on, in terms of like allowing people to have at least a fighting chance in the marketplace, you know. It's the egg lobby, man. <laughs> big big egg? Big egg. Dude, you can't trust big egg. <laughs> no, you're not going to get that good orange, you know, that orange yolk. Exactly, if you go big egg, you're going to get like some gray, nasty. Yeah. Just sad. Just sad. Sad Ugh. sad egg. Sad egg. You don't want sad egg. You kidding me? You gotta your kids six six thirty AM, you're still dark out, you're waking up, happy you gotta egg. make the kids breakfast. You gotta get a happy egg, dude. Yeah. You don't want a sad egg. You don't wanna send your kid to 
kindergarten with a couple of sad eggs in his stomach. That's just that's just that bad parenting. For the rest of the day. Eggs, there you go. It's gonna affect work. That's what it's all about. <laughs> yeah. Do you have any closing thoughts here? Um, I guess I have one more question. That makes yeah. that makes me think of one more thing because you're. I know you're a you're a scholar, and so I I wonder where where scholarly academic pursuits would fall into this. You know, like. So what you said, actually, it really illuminated some things for me, you know, applying pressure over time and then hoping for something in the future. And for me, like seeing progress, that's like really important to me when it comes to work. Right. But then where would the layer of it in terms of like practicality come in? Because, you know, a professor or a researcher like that's they have the social cachet, you know, that is good for them. Like people respect that type of pursuit, but where does that fall in terms of like the societal benefit? Like does a, you know, expert in 18th century, you know, Latin literature, it is that, what is that work doing? You know, does that make sense? My question? Yeah. I think it really straddles the work leisure balance because like to do scholarship itself it is it's kind of a leisure it does it's not even a leisurely activity but it is more on that side of the coin um when i when i was in scholardom <laughs> i did have to get like a certain amount of physical exertion every day otherwise i just like wasn't able to like sit there you know so for me having a good sure. balance of um physical labor which involved for me involved like working in the garden or like going on a run and then, right. then i was pretty good and i could sit down and do my work um my work yep okay <laughs> yep. I, yeah i think if, yeah. if we if we we're able to impose this and it maybe impose this like the exact wrong word. But if, if everyone were able to have a quota for just mm -hmm. physical labor hours mm -hmm. in the work week, and this is, I feel like we're, we're moving into some communist Russia territory here, but you know, like if it's like, okay, two hours a week, everybody in our community just has to do a little uh, physical labor, a little work. I think, you know, barring like the inability based on, you know, different types of handicaps, whatever. I, I think people would be legitimately way happier and we would have more community and people would be just overall like more invested in their communities. Yeah. What do you think? Yeah. You know what? During those riots last summer, I was seeing a lot of people our age like breaking buildings and tearing stuff down, you know? Um, and of course there was a cause for some of that, but, and I was thinking, you know what, what we need is we need like everyone from the age of like 18 to 25 to do like a civilian conservation corps. They go out for two years. They work in Montana, uh, dig some, holes build some bridges do some things like each one would be like assigned something based on what they want to do it could be like a skill building could be something for their future career but everyone just needs like this two years of kind of compulsory service 
I thought that was like a really good idea. Yeah. That no one would want to vote for, but no, <laughs> good luck getting that passed. But I feel you. I feel you. Well, yeah, that's uh, that's all I had. Okay. Well, thank you so much for listening, everybody. And this is us signing off. See ya.